0: Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us.
1: It was the last week of the Lord Jesus' ministry and he was there in Jerusalem in order to complete his work of salvation. He was there in order to die for the sins of the world and provide for the restoration of the Holy Spirit to anyone who would be willing to receive the Holy Spirit, the spirit of life that was lost in Adam. He was there in Jerusalem during the time of Passover. The people were there. The entire nation was there. They were required to be there because it was required according to the law of Moses. They were required to be there during three different festivals during the year this festival was a little bit unique in the sense that they did not know exactly when it would take place every year because it was dependent on the full moon and when the barley would be ready to be harvested the way that this worked was was that they would observe the full moons and make sure that they would know when the most recent full moon took place they would observe the barley that was growing around jerusalem And when the barley was ready to be harvested, they would know it would be ready to be harvested because they would parch the grain with fire, and if the grain remained and did not evaporate, then they knew it was ready to be harvested. They would then compare that day with the most recent full moon. If the most recent full moon occurred within ten days, then they would be able to declare that this was either the tenth day of the month or prior, This is how they would know when the 10th day of the month would occur. If it was the 11th day after the full moon, then they would wait until the following full moon. And then they would wait 10 days after the full moon that took place later. And then they would declare that to be the 10th day of the first month of the Hebrew calendar. That's how they determined when Passover would take place. And this is something that they would do every year. Now, when the barley was ready to be harvested, they would light signal fires, and these fires would be seen throughout the entire nation of Israel, and so all of the people would know when the first month finally was officially declared, according to when the barley was ready to be harvested. They would know when the tenth day of the month was by observing the full moon, And so on the 10th day of the first month, they would select a lamb. According to the laws of Passover, they were required to select a lamb, and they were to observe this lamb until the 14th day of the month. On the 14th day of the month, of the first month, they were required to then be in Jerusalem in order to sacrifice this lamb. So the entire nation of Israel who would be observing the laws of Passover would be there in Jerusalem with their Passover lambs that they would have observed for four days. Or they could, of course, go to the temple and buy a lamb that was pre-approved by the priests that they had been observing since the 10th day of the month. People could do that. But either way, people would be there in order to observe Passover. They would have their lamb. They would sacrifice their lamb at the temple. And then they would have a meal, eating the lamb roasted by fire. And they would eat bitter herbs and unleavened bread. That's what the law required. Now, when the law was given in Exodus chapter 12, the one thing that was left out for a period of time was the exact location where they would be observing the Passover laws. This was established later. The Lord said that they would have to observe the Passover at the place that would be established for his name. That was eventually established as Jerusalem. And so that's what the people are doing there in Jerusalem. And the Lord Jesus was there in order to observe these laws also with his disciples. Now, the Passover festival was about remembering and commemorating the exodus from Egypt. The exodus from Egypt was the time when the nation of Israel were taken out of Egypt by the hand of God, and he established them as a nation, as a sovereign, independent nation, giving them the laws that would govern how they would relate to each other and how they would relate to him. These were the laws that were given through Moses on Mount Sinai, and then they were brought into the promised land where they would be able to observe all of the laws that were given Through Moses that defined them as a nation, and so every year they would observe the Passover in order to remember when they became a nation, when they became a people, when they were given the law, when they began to be a people of God. This is what they would be remembering, and the Lord Jesus was there to participate in this, but what is very important to understand is that it wasn't just about that. Certainly, the laws of Passover were given by God so that we would remember these things. He declared that we were to do this in order to remember what he had done on our behalf. We are to remember, but that is not all that he came to accomplish. He did not come just to give the old covenant. In other words, he came to give a new covenant. He came to present a Messiah who would resolve the fundamental issue between man and God. The fundamental issue between man and God was not that we didn't have the right set of laws. The fundamental issue was that we were spiritually dead through Adam and we needed to be made spiritually alive through the restoration of the Holy Spirit through what the Lord Jesus would accomplish for us. So this is the time when the Lord Jesus came in order to accomplish that, to invoke the new covenant. And the way that he accomplishes this corresponds and parallels and fulfills what is foreshadowed and prophesied through the Passover laws. For example, on the tenth day of the month, he came into Jerusalem and the people recognized him as the Messiah. They selected him in that sense. It is often referred to as his triumphal entry when he enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. He came into Jerusalem and the people acknowledged him for who he really was. The religious leaders did not acknowledge him for who he really was, and so they were not able to establish him as the king at that time in the way that they would have done traditionally, but that did not prevent the Lord Jesus from accomplishing the work that he came to accomplish, which has to do with the salvation of humanity. So the Lord Jesus was selected on the 10th day of the month, and he was crucified on the 14th day of the month, the same day that the Passover lambs were killed. Now, the Passover lambs were killed at the beginning of that day, as the day began in the evening, and he was crucified the following day when the sun had come up. But what I want you to consider is that there is a significant correlation to the extent that the Lord Jesus can be identified as the Lamb of God. Consider what John the Baptist said about the Lord Jesus. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Another example is given to us in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." So while there is great significance and importance that we must remember about the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, the exodus from Egypt, what I want you to consider is that the Lord our God used those laws in order to do something else, in order to do something in addition to providing us with a festival through which we would be able to remember once a year in that way, in this way we would be able to remember the exodus from Egypt, he did something in addition to that. He also gave those laws in order to speak to us about what he would do in the future and in order to communicate with us in another way so that we could see what he was going to do, not to provide us with an exodus from Egypt, but to provide us with an exodus from the entire world not to establish us as a nation here on earth, but to establish us as a nation in eternity, in the kingdom of God that transcends what takes place here in the physical realm in this earth. So if we consider how he used the laws of Passover in order to show us how he would provide for salvation and how he would invoke a new covenant, if we consider that this is how he used them, then I believe it's reasonable to assume that this is what he had in mind when he first established them, when he first gave the laws concerning Passover, that this is really what he had in mind, not to just provide us with a festival that we would observe every year, but to provide us with an architecture, to provide us with something that we could refer to, that he could use in order to help us to understand, and so that he could explain to us something more that we can now enter into in the new life that we have in the Messiah. So it's my belief, my sincere belief, that this is what he had in mind with regards to the festival of Passover. Now, I can certainly appreciate the value of the festival, the value of observing the Passover laws. I can appreciate that. I'm Jewish. I grew up observing the Passover many times throughout my life. I have a deep appreciation for observing the Passover in the traditional sense, but I do not want to suggest that that's really what the Lord our God was intending to do as a completed work, that there was something else, and that it was completed through the revelation of the Messiah. Sometimes people ask me where they should go in order to observe the Passover, and I have to say that if you want to observe the Passover in order to be right with God in some way or in order to show God that you love him, or or whatever reason you may apply or ascribe. If you want to observe the Passover and claim that you have observed the laws of Passover, then all you have to do is go to the law and find out what the laws of Passover are. Sometimes people will ask me where they should go, and I tell them, well, the law says you should go to Jerusalem. That's where you go. And so if you don't go to Jerusalem, then you're not really observing Passover in the way that God commanded you can do that if you would like. You can go there and you can find some unleavened bread. There's a lot available there. You can find some bitter herbs. There's plenty for sale. You may have a little bit of a challenge in acquiring a lamb and sacrificing a lamb, but I'm sure you'll work that out when you get there. That's what it means to truly observe Passover. You can observe it in a traditional sense here or anywhere. You can do it as the rabbis taught my people to do it, if you would like to do that, just keep in mind the fact that the laws are very explicit, and if you choose to observe it in one way or another, just do so honestly, with sincerity, and with truth, and I am confident that you'll have a good time with it. But what I would like to focus on in this program, and a few programs after this, is what takes place during this time between the Lord Jesus selected on the tenth day of the month And he is crucified on the 14th day of the month. I have done a set of programs on accounting for the three days and three nights. And so if you'd like some more information concerning the day that he arrived in Jerusalem, the day that he was crucified, and the day that he rose from the dead, I've done a study on that, on accounting for the three days and three nights. I've also done a study on the trial, concerning the events surrounding his trial just before he was crucified. But in these programs, what I would like to take some time to focus on are the passages in the scriptures that correspond to evaluating him, to examining him. Because just as he was selected as a Passover lamb and he was crucified as a Passover lamb in that abstract sense, he was also examined as a Passover lamb. And there are some passages in the scriptures that show this. With great detail that he was examined by the leadership groups of the people who were esteemed to be leaders there in Israel during this time, they examined him through the kinds of questions that they asked him, through the way that they spoke with him. It was an examination. And of course, I don't know if they intended to speak with him in this way, if they intended to examine him in this way, but the testimony that we have in the scriptures seems to correlate with this very well. And so I wanted to take some time to look at these individual passages to show you the kinds of questions that they were asking him and to try to help you gain a better understanding concerning the intent of their questions and the depth of their questions. Because I believe you'll have a greater understanding and a greater appreciation for who the Lord Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. So, when he first went to the temple in order to make himself available for people to ask questions of him, the first group of people who questioned him were the chief priests. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 23. In Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 23, it says, Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? They are questioning the Lord Jesus to determine whether or not he is qualified to be anything or anyone, whether he is qualified to be a representative of God. They ask him a question based on authority. Who gave him this authority? Now, the chief priests were a group of people. There were 24 of them at any given time. 24 men were selected who oversaw 24 groups of priests, and they would rotate during different times of the year in order to provide services for the temple. These chief priests were selected, and they were given authority over a group of priests. In addition to that, they were given authority over the nation through being members of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was composed of the high priest, the 24 chief priests, and some Pharisees, Sadducees, and some scribes. And so the chief priests functioned there in Jerusalem as authorities, and this authority was given to them... For the most part, by men, of course, but it was given to them and their entire life functioned on the basis of them exercising their authority. They had authority in the sense that they sat on the Sanhedrin and they judged cases and they determined the outcome of various conflicts and helped people obtain resolutions to issues. And they were also authorities in the sense that they were overseers, authorities over A group of priests in the sense that they would dispense work. They would allocate work for the priests to do. They were given the authority in order to ensure that everybody did their part as part of the priesthood. So this was their life. This was their function. So when they asked the Lord Jesus this question, you have to consider that this is their livelihood, this is their way of life, this is how they relate to other people, they relate to other people on the basis of their authority, and so they are using their understanding of how we relate to people, they're using this in order to confront the Lord Jesus and ask, by what authority is he able to do the things that he is doing? Who gave him his authority in order to engage the people in the way that he was engaging with them? In verse 24, this is Matthew chapter 21, verse 24, it says, But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. He responds with a question and says that if you will answer this question, I will be able to answer your question. He's not avoiding the question. What he is saying is that in order for him to answer the question, he needs to know that they understand something else. In order for them to understand his answer, he has to be sure that they understand some other things that are necessary to understand in order to understand his answer. And so he's not avoiding the question, he's simply explaining to them that if they would like to know the answer, he needs to make sure that they understand some things that they're going to have to know to understand what he's going to say. So in verse 25, he asks the question, "'The baptism of John, where was it from, from heaven or from men?' And they reason among themselves, saying, "'If we say from heaven, he will say to us, "'Why then did you not believe him?' But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet.'" So, this is their decision. Their decision is to acknowledge that John the Baptist obtained his authority from heaven, or they're going to have to say that he obtained his authority from men, and the consequences are that if they say that his authority was from heaven then how can they say that the Lord Jesus did not also receive authority from heaven because of John's testimony of him as being the one who would have authority from heaven? So he's answering the question by saying that John testified of the authority that I have. And so if you would like to know by what authority I do these things and who gave me this authority, then hear the testimony of somebody else. Hear the testimony of John the Baptist. So here's your opportunity. Here is your opportunity to confirm that you believe that John the Baptist was sent from heaven. If you believe that, then you have to believe his testimony, and I have answered your question that my authority comes from heaven, and the living God has given me the authority by which I am able to teach and do the things that I am teaching and doing. But if you won't acknowledge that, then your only alternative is to say that his authority came from some men, from some other people, like the people who listened to him. That's where he got his authority. He was not a prophet. He was not a man of God. He was not sent by God. He was doing those things on behalf of some other people who just simply wanted him to do those things. For example, the people who were baptized, they gave him his authority by allowing him to baptize them. So through this question, the chief priests are put in a position where they are going to have to testify of what they really believe. Do they really believe that John was a prophet? Do they really believe his testimony? Now they say in verse 26, but if we say, From men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. And so they're going to make their decision based on what? Based on their fear of other people? They're not willing to say that they don't think that John was sent from heaven because they're afraid of the other people? Why don't they say it? Because they believe it. Don't they stand on their own convictions? Don't they stand according to their own beliefs? This is their chance. This is their chance to reveal what they're really made of, who they really are, what they really believe, what they really stand for. So what do they say? In verse 27, so they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, in effect, he did tell them by what authority he does these things. Through his question, regardless of how they answered it, He still testified of by what authority he does these things. He still answered their question. He answered their question by showing that it was John who testified of him, of the authority that he has. And so he did not fail to answer their question. But what I would like you to see is that they answer it by saying, we do not know. Now, these are the people who should know. They have seats on the Sanhedrin. They oversee the priests in the temple. If anybody's going to have a position on John the Baptist, they should have one. But they say, we don't know. In front of all of these people. Now, I know what I would be thinking if I was there. I would be thinking, if you don't know this, then what do you know? I mean, what do you really know? I mean, if you can't take a position on something as obvious as this, then to me, this simply shows that you really know nothing. You know nothing. You may have authority because somebody says you do, but you certainly don't have authority because you have some inherent qualifications with regards to knowing the truth. I mean, what business do you have sitting on the Sanhedrin anymore? If you're the kind of person who is called upon in order to help determine what is true and what is not, and you can't figure out something as simple as this, then what business do you have being in the position that you are in? What business do you have having the authority that you have? Who gave you this authority and what does this say about them? Those are the kinds of things that I would be thinking, but I wasn't there and so I can only speculate on these things. But what I would like you to see here in this case is that they were examining the Lord Jesus through this question to see if there was some blemish that he had or some inadequacy that he had. They may not have known that this is what they were doing, but they were fulfilling What was foreshadowed through the Passover law concerning the Passover lamb by questioning him in the way that they did. Now he follows up, he continues, and he gives them a parable. He gives them parables that describe the truths that he is there to communicate. He is there to testify of the truth, and so while they may continue to ask him questions or not continue to ask him questions, regardless of that, he's going to continue to testify of the truth. Their questions may be attempts to try to show that he is not testifying of the truth, but he will continue to do so anyway. Now, with regards to his parabolic teaching, he could just say directly many things. In fact, when he gives this parable, he does say in effect, that they do not believe the testimony of John the Baptist, that they do not believe that he was sent by God, he does confront them with that. But through the parabolic teachings, he continues to testify of the truth concerning himself, that he is the Messiah. He just won't say it directly. And the main reason why is because during his ministry, there was a point in his ministry When the religious leaders officially rejected him as the Messiah, this occurred when he healed the man who was blind, he was mute, he was not able to see, hear, or speak. When he healed that man by casting a demon out of him, he had a conversation with the religious leaders as a result of that event, and in that conversation he explained to them that he would perform no more signs in order to testify of the truth concerning him being the Messiah. He would only give one more sign And that was the sign of Jonah that he would be in the grave for three days and three nights. So from that day forward, he began to speak parabolically. He presented the same teachings that he was presenting before, told the same truths concerning himself and concerning the people there, the same truths. He just did it in a parabolic way. And so that is what he's going to follow up with with the chief priests He's going to continue his message. He's not going to let them just walk away. He is going to declare to them that they are the ones who have no right to question him about his authority because they themselves have no real authority. They are the ones who rejected the messenger that God sent, John the Baptist, and they are also now rejecting the Lord Jesus, the one who John testified of, and the one whom God sent, the last one his son and i will explain this in the next program
0: you've been listening to the broadcast outreach of living god ministries you can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net